So we're wrapping up this passage, this section this morning, and we're in Acts 20, verses 32 through 38. Now, this time of year, of course, this season, bombards us with what we should give, and that's the, that's the fourth section of this message, what to give. He's encouraging the church. Uh, it is what to give. We've seen what to do, what to value, what to expect, and this morning it's what to give. And we're told over and over what we should give. We're certainly this week told that we should give thanks for our blessings, and rightfully so, we should do that. It is a great time of family. Uh, I love the food, but we are not, and, and I love the football, but that's not why we celebrate. That's not what Thanksgiving is about. Those are certainly blessings that we give thanks for, but if that's where we stop, we're being a little superficial. There's so much more that we have to be thankful for. Commercials, TV, if, if you still watch regular cable TV and not all on uh, apps, um, and streaming services, you're, you're being told, and even if you are, they're getting to us there, you're told, being told what presents to give to family and friends. If you have a man in your life, he apparently wants an electric razor and has for 50 years. I've never in my life wanted an electric razor. So if, that, if you're thinking, what does Michael want for Christmas? It's not an electric razor. It's a 1955 Corvette. I think we established that last year that I want a Corvette. Uh, but I want an old one. So, but, the, but we're being told, this is what you need to give. This is what they'll, they'll appreciate. This is what they will love you for. And boy, uh, show up on Christmas morning with two brand new cars in the driveway. Let me tell you the amount of um, <clears throat> discussion there would be in my house if two new cars showed up on Christmas morning and I'm handing the keys to... It would not be excitement. It would not be pleased, uh, pleasure. It would be ugly. But they want us to believe that's what we want, right? We need these two cars. And then, of course, it's coming, we're coming up on December, so the thing that you need to give is that final tax-deductible gift, right? Get, get that in before the thir- January, or December 31st so it can credit uh, the new year. Maybe, maybe you have family members that are expecting a child in December, January-ish, and maybe they're hoping to get that gift before de- de- uh, December 31st so you get that child tax credit on this tax year and don't have to wait till next tax year. I, I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe that's not an issue for you, but we're still being told what to, to give. Well, Paul gives us a different idea here of, of what to give. He, he doesn't stop at the superficial by any means, and he doesn't talk about a holiday. He is talking about every day, what we are to give. And some of these things will, uh, because it's not a holiday, he's not talking about giving thanks and, and that sort of thing, though it is certainly there. Paul begins so many of his letters. He begins the letter to the Ephesian church that he's going to write here in just a couple of years back to this group. Uh, he he uh, began the letter to the, uh, Thessalonica that we studied in Sunday school this morning, one sec- portion of, anyway. Uh, he, he begins it with, I give thanks to you daily in my prayers. Thanksgiving was a constant part of Paul's life. Paul knew where he had been. He knew what he, what he had been. He knew what Christ had done in him and with him and to him, so thanksgiving was always a part of what he did. 
This is, if I can use the term, and I don't mean that the way it sounds really, this is generic. This is every day what we are to give to the Lord. Read with me. And now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that I worked with my own hands to support myself and those who are with me. In every way, I've shown you that it is necessary to help the weak by laboring like this and to remember the words of the Lord Jesus because he said it is more blessed to give than to receive. We see in this passage, I believe, six parts of life, six items from our lives, six emotions, six responses. I'm not really sure what noun to use to uh, label these. I didn't want to just say things because that sounds way too bland. Six parts of ourselves that we need to give to God. The first one that we see that we are supposed to give to God, we see in verse 32a, we are to give our loved ones. Give your loved ones. And now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace. I commit you to God. I give you over, he's saying to these leaders, these these folks that uh, he was very likely hands-on, one-to-one, instrumental in bringing to Christ and then training up in leadership in the church. He, at this point, is talking to people he knew. Now, when he writes the letter to the Ephesians, as we've talked about on Wednesday nights, and our, our Wednesday night Bible study group knows this, he's writing to a group primarily that he doesn't know. Uh, the church has grown since he's been gone. But this time, this meeting, he is talking to people that he very likely led to Christ and certainly trained in leadership. And it says that I give them, uh, I get, commit you to God and to the word of his grace. See, Paul understood that our time with our loved ones is limited. We don't have forever. We don't have today, necessarily. Paul knew that he had, though he had spent time, though he had probably been in some sort of correspondence with them since he was with them, he didn't know what tomorrow held. And remember, he is going on the assumption here that things could go, and he's been warned over and over that they will go, incredibly haywire when he gets to Jerusalem. Things are going to be bad when he gets there. He knows they're going to be bad, but he doesn't really know how bad they're going to be. He understands, I think, somewhere in his mind, at least, it could end in his death in Jerusalem. It could go that bad. So he knows that he will likely, and we're going to see this in a, a few verses on, he will likely never see these people again. Well, he knows it because he said that at the beginning, that I will probably not see you again. And he is okay with that. He's not excited about it. He's not rejoicing in the fact, yay, I'm never going to see y'all again. It's not that sort of thing. But he is content 
in the Lord because he knew that he did not have forever with them in the first place. He knew he had greater mission or, or more mission work to do when he left Ephesus the first time. He had other people to reach. He had other callings to pursue. So he knew his time was limited. He knew, and we need to know, as we kind of extrapolate this out in giving our loved ones to the Lord, you can't fix every issue that's wrong with your loved one. It's not within your power It's not within your ability. It's not even within your responsibility to fix every issue with your loved one. You have to give that loved one and whatever it is that's going on in their lives to God and to the word of his grace. And say, Lord, this is yours now. Well, how can we we do that? How can we give our loved ones over to the Lord so callously and casually we might think and well I've got the answer here God loves them more than you do and you may think there's no way anybody could love my children more than I do God does God loves them more than you do and when our children were born we wanted to and we verbalized at the time Lord these are your children You've given them to us for a while, but what's the first point? Our time with them is limited. I'm not going to be with them forever. I I won't parent them forever. There'll come a day, sooner maybe rather than later, when they won't have me at all. And I have to have given them to the Lord, not right before I kick off and they're going to be alone, but the day they were born and said, Lord, they are yours. And we need to do that with every loved one we have because he loves them more than we do and why can we trust him not only does he love them more than we do he says not just to commit them to God but he commits them to the word of his grace because his word is powerful too often we believe that we can't give our loved ones to the Lord we can't trust the Lord to work through them because we think we are better at fixing them than God and his word are. And we're wrong. His word is powerful. And his word says that we are to give them to him and that he will work in their lives and that he does the work and we are to be faithful to his calling and we have to trust that word that he is able to change people where we are not. So, church, number one, give those you love to God. Number two, we see in verse, uh, the second half of verse 32, where he says, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all who are sanctified, talking about God and his word of grace. You need to give up your throne. Now, I struggled with a way to put this, and I, I Throne was the the best way I could come up with it. I also thought of the word sovereignty. What we need to do as believers is give up the idea that we have any power over other people. Any ability to change hearts. We don't change hearts. The Holy Spirit is the only one that changes hearts. So number two, give up your throne. Quit thinking it all depends on you. 
Jesus did not call you to save people. You didn't die on a cross. You didn't rise from the dead. You didn't live a perfect life. You didn't do anything Jesus did, and he never told us, never told the disciples, go out and save those people. He told them to go out and share the gospel. And then they will respond as his Holy Spirit leads them. Or they won't. That's a very real possibility as well. But that's going to be their decision. That's going to be their choice to make in following Christ or not. So quit thinking it all depends on you. You can't heal. You can't heal their diseases. You can't heal that loved one. You can't take the cancer out of their body. Medical science may be able to do something to help that, but you cannot, and neither can that doctor, ultimately, eternally, totally, and completely fix illnesses. It doesn't matter what we recuperate from, we're still going to die. Lazarus, raised from the dead, even though he stinketh, died later. And he awaits the ultimate, the final resurrection. But he still died. Every person Jesus healed eventually died. It's just the way it works. So quit thinking you can heal them. You can't. You can't fix them. Whatever you see is wrong with them, whatever is truly wrong with them, whatever in whatever way they rebel against the Lord, whatever parts of their lives that that we can see and we know this is not of the Lord and this needs to be redirected and this needs to be changed. You can't fix that. It is not possible. You can help, you can guide, you can disciple, you can lead, you can pray, you can love, you can weep, you can do all of those things, but those things aren't the, the wrench that turns the bolt that stops the leak. It is only the hand of God that can turn the bolt, stop the leak, and fix the problem. And you can't save either. And we covered that already. You can't save their souls. Paul, later on, and I've talked about this before, Paul later on in Romans says, I would give up my own salvation if I could for my Jewish brethren to accept Christ. He would give up the most precious thing he could. But he couldn't. Paul knew he couldn't save a single person, and neither can you. So if you can't, then the, the, the opposite must be true. Only God can, what does he say here in verse 36b? Build you up. Only God can build up. Only God can fortify. Only God can do the preventative maintenance, if we're going to go with this fixing analogy here, the preventative maintenance that builds up the believer and prepares them for those things that are coming in life against them, those trials, those tribulations. Only God can give an inheritance, especially the type of inheritance that he's talking about here. He's talking about salvation, that's the inheritance he's talking about. You cannot give that inheritance. Only God has salvation in his hand. 
So you can't give it. No matter how much you love that loved one. No matter how much it hurts you that they are not a believer, you still can't save them. Only God can sanctify. That's what Paul says. I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up, to give you an inheritance among all who are sanctified. You get that inheritance of the sanctified by being sanctified yourself, and only God can do that. Number two, give up on the idea that it all depends on you. Number three, give up your pride. Verse 33 tells us about Paul and his uh, eschewing pride here. He says, I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. And that seems like an odd verse to put in there, an odd sentence for him to do. Now he's, he's moving toward finances, so that's part of the transition here. But this pride goes back, I believe, to the previous, two, uh, the previous sentence, the previous verse, verse 32 as well. It's a transition statement. He is uh, talking about the fact that he has never wanted any position. He had never uh, 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 really wished he had been in a better spot financially, socially, with uh, his influence. Because what Paul understood and what we need to understand is that if you aren't on the throne, then it's not about you. If you give up your throne, it's easy to give up your pride. It's not my throne. We, you know, we have a, a, a wonderful saying from recent times when describing certain events. We might say, not my circus, not my monkeys. I try that at home sometimes. Turns out they are my monkeys. Therefore, it is my circus. And uh, my wife will tell me I'm the chief monkey. So I, I can't get away from it there, and I certainly would not want to equate God's kingdom with a circus and monkeys, but you get the idea that we do have the relief of saying, not my kingdom, not my throne, not my pride. I don't have to look at what goes on with other people and in some way think it reflects poorly on me, it shames me, or the opposite of that is true. I don't have to look at other people and say, I have to be a certain way, I have to comport myself in a certain manner so that they think a certain thing about me. All I have to do is point them to Jesus. Paul knew that his pride could get in the way, and if, if you remember a few uh, weeks, maybe months now at this point, back, I, I, I told you, I believe Paul's thorn in his flesh, that messenger of Satan, was not an illness, was not another person, was not uh, anything like that. It was his own pride, his own sinful pride. I think we, we see glimmers of that Throughout his letters, he, he confesses it in various ways. And then in Acts, I think we see it uh, rear its head occasionally as well. But Paul knew. He, he fought that pride because he knew it wasn't his throne. 
Therefore, it wasn't his responsibility. Our, our actions, our, our choices, our... Uh, Paul knew for the leaders in the church at Ephesus, they can quickly be based on their personal status. Do this so that people think this about me. Act in this way so these people think highly of me. Do these things so that I am seen as better than I am. One I saw last night, uh, uh, it's, it's amazing sometimes to me how, and I've told you before, when I'm preparing, uh, finalizing my sermon or even working on it during the, earlier in the week, that I, I will work for a few minutes, then I'll distract myself and I'll go back and I'll work it and I'll do, and usually scrolling through Twitter or Facebook or something along those lines. And last night, when I was finalizing these points, I don't remember who it was on Facebook, it was some online magazine type thing, like Christianity Today or something like that, said this, it just came across my screen, then I lost it. So I'm paraphrasing, basically, that he said, it said that pride is the carbon monoxide of sin. It silently seeps in and slowly poisons. I thought, wow, it does. It, 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 it is subtle, usually. I mean, you, you don't usually just one day wake up, boom, super prideful. You know, it's, it's a little here, and it's a little there, and it's a, an adjustment over here, and, a, and, and, and seeking uh, favor from that, and, and, and slowly, and, and maybe it's this success and that success, and certainly, certainly Paul could look at Ephesus. We talked about his success in Ephesus. We talked about the way the, the demons just fell out as, as, as Paul walked through, basically. He could have looked at Ephesus and said, the pinnacle of my missionary endeavor, aren't I good? And instead, he said, I didn't covet anybody's silver, gold, or clothing. I did not seek a status symbol. I did not let, allow myself to be puffed up with pride. Number three, give up putting yourself first. Because that's what pride does. Me first, everybody else later. Number four, Give up your security. Verse 34, you yourselves know that I worked with my own hands to support myself and those who are with me. Now, so far as we've worked through this passage, uh, these, these three verses, uh, two verses so far, we should have gotten the impression already that not much depends on us. I mean, this, this is what we should walk away with this morning. It doesn't depend on me. I'm not in charge. Not my circus, not my monkeys, not my kingdom, not my throne. So part of that not depending on us is our financial security or really any security. Those are included in this idea that it's not up to us. Here, Paul had, had the option, and he didn't take it. He, he took the harder route, the less certain route. He said, I'm going to support myself through the missionary endeavors. You know what else that did? That took away from ministry time. It would have been easier. It may have been even more successful if Paul had, instead of working half the day or more, 
he had devoted the entire day to ministry, to the mission work. Now, he knew He wrote about this in other letters that his support was the church's responsibility. And he knew the benefits of that. He he knew what what had gone on in Acts, where the deacons were set up so that the uh, elders, the, the pastors, could devote themselves to the study of God's word and to prayer. So that other responsibilities in the church were taken by other men. Paul Paul knew all of that. And yet at this point and throughout his ministry, he chose to take the harder, less certain route. But he was okay with that. Why? Because it wasn't his kingdom. It wasn't his throne. He, He knew that regardless of the route he took, whether he had depended on the churches completely or whether he depended on himself completely, choosing the latter and not the former, he knew that neither church finances nor the ebb and flow of the market concerned him at all. It didn't matter because he knew his calling. He knew what God had told him to do. He says in one place that I've learned to live through any situation, great, uh, uh, great need or great supply, whether it's a bad situation or a good situation, it doesn't matter. I think this is Philippians chapter 1. It doesn't matter because if I die, I go to heaven. If I don't, I preach for Christ. To live for, uh, is for uh, is Christ, to die is gain. Therefore, I give him everything. I give him everything. I think I just gave away the end of the sermon. Give up your fear of the uncertain. So much more easily said than done. And yet, we have people that will leave our churches and go to a foreign land with nothing except for basically enough money to live on to a land where they will stand a good chance of being killed, take their families to share the gospel. You think they gave up their fear of the uncertain? You think they're worried about where's that next meal going to come from? I mean, we as Southern Baptists have the International Mission Board, so they won't have to concern themselves with those decisions. But just because they know they're going to have a meal and a roof doesn't mean that uncertainty is completely out the window. And yet they go willingly, just like Paul, because they gave up, number four, they gave up their fear of the uncertain. Number five, give up, give your money. Verse 35, in every way I've shown you that it is necessary to help the weak by laboring like this and to remember the words of the Lord Jesus, because he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. I know, now I've gone to meddling, talking about money directly. That's all right, you'll be okay. Go have some lunch after this, take a nap, and then later on you'll be like, well, I still don't like it, but anyway, at least you'll be full and rested. What we give is more important than what we get. Paul is making the statement that I lived this way, and, and, and underlying this is he knows he was able to produce 
as much as he wanted as a tent maker, a, a, a fabric cutter, or whatever it was exactly he did. He, he was able to produce as much product as necessary to make whatever money he felt he needed, whether that meant to support himself or to give to other people. Paul lived in such a way that he was able to give away. Dave Ramsey isn't always one of my favorite people, mainly because he convicts me a lot about my finances. And I just don't agree with everything he says, but the, the, the purpose, the end goal of financial peace is always to have more to give away. That's, that's his, he, he does not tell us, pay your debts, get rid of your, all your bills as much as you can so that you can be financially secure and get and get and get and get and store and store and store and store, but instead get this amount that you need to live on, get this amount that you need in savings so that if anything comes up, you'll be okay and give the rest away. That's what we see Paul doing right here. He worked so he could give away as much as he needed to. Had he depended on the churches, his income may have been limited to some extent, and he would not have been able to give away as much as he wanted to. So what we give is more important than what we get or how we get. And he is telling us here that true happiness, because Jesus said it is more blessed, there is more happiness, there is more joy, true happiness is found when we give, not when we get. And for some of us, especially those of us under the age of mm, 40, because I'm 44, I'll say it that way. Sorry, Elizabeth. I mean, under the age of, you're 23. So under the age of 20, <clears throat> it's hard to believe that it's going to be better to give something away to get, than get something. I mean, we're at the time of year where we as kids could not wait for, Sunday, for Christmas morning, right? We're going to get this and this and this and this and this and all these things. And we're just sure that, that Santa's going to bring all those things. And, and sometimes he does and sometimes he doesn't. But as we get older, we learn there really is more joy in giving away than getting. E even as parents, right? Those, those, those gifts that we buy the children, we... We cannot wait for them to open on Christmas morning. Why? Because we know the joy of giving. I believe that is just part of our Imago Dei, a part of us having the image of God. When he breathed life into us and we are created in his image, part of that image is he is a giver. And he instilled in us joy in giving, and Jesus said at some point, though it's not recorded in Scripture, Paul knew that he said in some of his teachings somewhere, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And, and Paul says, in every way I've shown you, first of verse 35, in every way I've shown you that it is necessary, it is necessary, it is a moral obligation to be generous when it comes to our finances. It's not a choice, it is an obligation. Therefore, Number five, give up your slavery to money. It controls us. That's one of the other points that Dave Ramsey makes, is that when we are in debt, when we are not good stewards of our finances, it controls us. We are slaves to it. Paul, long before Dave Ramsey 
understood the same thing, and he wants us to give that up. Number six, give your future. After he said this, verse 36, after he said this, he knelt down and prayed with all of them. There were many tears shed by everyone. They embraced Paul and kissed him, grieving most of all over his statement that they would never see his face again. And they accompanied, accompanied him to the ship. I've already reminded you that Paul's future in Jerusalem looked bleak. He was not hopeful about the, the events of, when he got there. He was right. Uh, it was just as he was warned, just as he was told. So he, but he didn't know how bad it would be. He didn't know what the end would be. Troubles awaited him, uh, afflictions, chains, but he didn't know what the end result would be. The, the leaders here in Ephesus, they could not countenance a future that didn't include Paul. They could not imagine getting down the, the, the road a bit and not having Paul able to write them a letter or say, yeah, I'll be there in a couple of months. I'm going to come and visit you. I know you need me right now. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'll be there as soon as I can. They could not fathom that, that situation. Many of you have gone through that with loved ones already, whether it was parents or spouses, maybe even children, where you think, there's just no way I can make it through without that person in my life. Let's go back to point number one. We have to give our loved ones to Him and trust Him with our future. Even with all that uncertainty, even with all that pain, even with all that, the, the weeping and, and, and the tears, the grieving over the fact that they would never see His face again and that He knew He was going to chains and afflictions, Paul stepped onto that ship and the people let him go because they had given God their future. Because, God, uh, because Paul had given them to God. So number six, we need to give up our uncertain next step. Paul did not know what that ship held for him. Heck, this day and time, he didn't know if he'd make it to Jerusalem if he got on that ship. Anything could have happened. And if we, as we continue reading the story of Acts, we'll see that it often did. Yet he got on the ship anyway. He gave up that uncertain next step. He gave that to God and said, God, my future is yours. So what do you need to take home this morning? Maybe this kind of distills it for you. Most profound thing, second most profound thing I'll say this morning, you're not God. I'm going to let that settle a minute, make sure you got it. You're not God. The most profound thing I'll say this morning, God is. No, you're blown away. That seminary education really paid off. But we know that. But why do we live like we don't believe it sometimes? Why do we live by not 
giving our loved ones to the Lord? Why do we live by not giving up the throne and acting like it depends on us? Why do we live in pride when we need to live in humility, giving up putting ourselves first? Why then do we live as if security is what matters in the midst of our fear of the uncertain? Uh, Why do we live as if our money controls everything and that is the end goal of all situations? Why do we live as if we can A, tell the future and B, have any influence over it whatsoever when we know that we're not God and God is. So if that's takeaway number one, takeaway number two is a three-parter. There's no part of your life that's yours. No loved one, no, no emotion, no responsibility, no penny, no decision, no next step. None of it is yours. And if none of that's yours, then there's no part of your life you should hold on to. God, you can have all of it. I mean, most of it. Some of it. A little of it. No, all of it. You must give everything to Him. We present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to Him, for this is our reasonable worship, our reasonable duty. And if we're giving Him everything as a believer, then this morning, if you have never trusted Jesus Christ, then part of that everything you need to give him is not just your, your money and your pride and all these other things that you need to let go of. You need to give the Lord your eternity. And honestly, if you've never trusted Jesus Christ, these other things, you'll never be able to let them go. It's going to be hard when you're a believer, but you're going to white-knuckle those things. Hold on to them, but when Jesus has your heart, he's able to loosen that grip, and it'll take some time. That's okay. So maybe you need to give the Lord your eternity this morning. Well, what does that mean? That that means understanding that this world is not the way it was supposed to be, that God had a plan, God had a design And he had it at at the birth of creation. But sin came in and messed with that. Disobedience messed with that. And God's design has been hindered and hurt by sin since Adam and Eve. And we do it in our own lives. And we, we sin, we go against God's plan, we go against God's will. Even as believers, right? No, this part of the money is mine. No, I'm going to keep some of that pride. Nope, you can't have these loved ones. Nope, nope, nope. We, we, we still do it. And every time we do, that sin leads to brokenness. It leads to another way we realize that we are incapable of living the life God's called us to. The, the life that God intends for us. And then we realize we're incapable of fixing the broken 
parts that, that, that our sin create. We tend to just make them more broken. The answer to that is the gospel. He, he talks about this in verse 24, now that we're wrapping up this message. He said, but I consider my life of no value to myself. My purpose is to finish my course and the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus Christ to testify, testify to the gospel of God's grace. And that is the fix for the brokenness. That is the fix for the sin, the gospel. Jesus, the perfect son of God, come to earth living a perfect life in flesh, just like one of us being betrayed, crucified, and dead, and then rising from the grave on the third day. The cross taking our sin, the cross taking our punishment, the resurrection showing that if he says, I can forgive your sins, and the way I'm going to, I can also give you eternal life, I'm going to prove it by coming back from the grave, defeating death. And then we repent and believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that he can save us, that he will save us. And then as we accept that gospel, we begin to recover and pursue God's design in our lives. God's design that includes these six parts of our lives that we need to give back to him. And daily we do it. Daily we give him a little more and a little more and this peace and we don't take it back. That is the gospel message. And that is what you can give, how you can give your eternity to him today. Pray with me. Father, I thank you. Lord Jesus, thank you for your gift, your salvation, your, your presence bodily on that cross, your love for us that would put you there, your willingness to take all of our suffering. God, thank you that you draw us still as believers. You you correct us, you admonish us with your word, you lead, you guide, you direct. Holy Spirit, thank you for working in our hearts, testifying to us the truth of Scripture, and being the down payment for our eternity in heaven. Lord, this morning, I pray that you would work on hearts, that your Holy Spirit would flow through this place, that those who have not accepted Christ, whether they're in this room listening or they're sitting at home this morning or some date in the future watching this, that they would hear the call of the Holy Spirit and respond in faith to Jesus Christ. Believers would be edified, Lord, that we would give it all to you, everything to you. Because you're God, and we're not. Lord, work on hearts today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So what is your decision today? How do you need to respond? Accept Christ? Do you need to be baptized? Do you need to correct something in your life? Lead a life of holiness? Do you need to recommit or return to Jesus this morning? Maybe there is something in your life you need to respond in obedience to. You need to... Do something to be used according to God's purpose. Join our church. You can come and pray with me or Tom. Tom will be over here to my right. I'll be over here to my left. You can share it on a connection card if you're watching online at some point. 
comment or send a message to the church, we would love to talk to you about that. But whatever your decision is this morning, now will be your time to respond. We are going to take uh, Dr. McKeever's admonition to be a house of prayer seriously. So this morning and in the coming Sundays, our invitation, our time of response is going to be twice as long. We're going to take about five minutes, about the length of a song. We're not going to sing. We're going to pray. You can come to the rails. You can kneel where you are. Just like always, though, I'm asking you to change your position as you pray. If you normally sit, stand up. If you normally stand up, sit. Whatever it is, but in some way physically change your position so that it focuses you, gets you out of your routine a little bit. Then as we get to the end of that song, Mindy will uh, let us know that we'll sing, and we'll sing this morning, I Surrender All, and we'll sing it just like we always would. And if you would like to pray with one of us, if you would like to talk about salvation or whatever it is you need to do, this is your time. So let's stand or sit or kneel or come to the front, pray, but for the next few minutes, do business with the Lord.